Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. Welcome back to another episode of CRST, the podcast. I'm Laura Straub, Editor-in-Chief of CRST. Over the past year plus, we've all learned a lot about our abilities to rise to the occasion. Like so many, for me, in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, I took on the challenge of working from home with my three young children beside me while also trying to help my daughter with her schoolwork. After 16 weeks of that balancing act, I was eager to return to a more regular way of life. But with my children back in school and daycare, I found myself worrying every day that one of them would contract the virus. This fear has subsided somewhat, but it reminded me that rising to meet any challenge is as much about mental grit as it is about being prepared. In this episode of CRST The Podcast, we explore how four expert cataract surgeons rise to challenges in the OR. Sumana Kamana from New York Presbyterian Hospital kicks off this episode with a piece that she and Ashley Brissett co-authored about managing unexpectedly uncooperative patients during cataract surgery. A surgical day runs seamlessly in part because of a broad range of preparations, including preparations of the mind, such as preoperative plan, body, ergonomic considerations, and soul, the reason we do this job. We do our best to be well-prepared for surgery, but sometimes even the best laid plans go awry. Having the tools in our toolboxes to help address the unexpected is an essential part of being a great surgeon. When a patient's arm suddenly begins moving towards their head, it's important to act quickly to prevent them from touching their eyes and face. Common causes of movement include an itchy nose, a secondary effect of some forms of anesthesia, pain, and agitation, an unwanted effect of sedation. If this occurs, verbal anesthesia may be employed. This technique allows surgeons and support staff to talk to patients through the situation with positive reinforcement and helps to redirect and remind them that they are having surgery. Common examples are as follows. The cataract is almost out. You are doing really well. Or no moving or talking. You're having surgery on your eye. If necessary, remove instruments from the eye and ask patients if they are experiencing pain or having a specific concern. General anxiety can sometimes be alleviated with music, the patient's choice, or a hand to hold throughout the procedure, often that of a circulating nurse. These strategies usually keep patients calm until the anesthesia takes effect. When movement is a result of pain, the differential diagnosis spans from extra to intraocular causes. Patients typically receive tetracaine drops and lidocaine ophthalmic gel about 30 minutes before surgery begins. Additional tetracaine drops can be administered before the start of the case if a patient is noted to be more sensitive to pain and pressure. A peribulbar or retrobulbar block may be used for patients who are less cooperative and for complex cases that will take longer to complete. The placement of a lid speculum can cause discomfort if the instrument is open too wide. The problem can be managed by positioning a folded 4x4 piece of gauze underneath the speculum to minimize the pressure on the globe. Conge manipulation can also cause discomfort. Switching to instruments that are gentler on the conjunctiva can help. For example, a 0.12 forceps may be changed to a Wexel sphere cut flush to the blue handle, or a Thornton fixation ring with the teeth side up. In our experience, these changes in instrumentation tend to cause less bleeding and pain for the patient. 
Lens iris diaphragm retropulsion syndrome is caused by reverse pupillary block, which starts when there is 360 iridocapsular contact. This phenomenon leads to deepening of the anterior chamber, pupillary dilation, and significant patient discomfort. The syndrome can easily be reversed by lifting the iris from the anterior capsule with any available instrument, such as a FACO, IA tip, or a Sinsky hook. This maneuver equalizes the pressure throughout the anterior chamber. Young age, myopia, and prior vitrectomy increases the risk of this phenomenon. It is important to recognize lens iris diaphragm retropulsion syndrome early as a cause of pain in order to break the block and avoid unnecessary discomfort. Patients with significant neck pathology, such as recent neck surgery, cervical kyphosis, often have a limited range of motion in their necks. Even if it takes more time, prioritizing patient comfort in the OR before proceeding with surgery is essential. The head upper body may be kept elevated to decrease posterior pressure either by placing the patient in reverse Trendelenburg position or after the patient is positioned flat by simply raising their head. Taping the patient's head to the headrest also helps remind them not to move. Care must be taken, however, not to tape the head too tightly or discomfort may result. Sometimes it's beneficial to provide anesthesia before positioning patients if they feel more anxious or to say that they cannot lie flat. Anesthesia may quell some of their anxiety and allow better positioning. If the patient is claustrophobic, the drape can also be propped up to create more space between it and the face. Patients who become disinhibited under monitored anesthesia care, or MAC, can experience significant unwanted movement. A change in the level of sedation, if the patient's respiratory rate and blood pressure allow, usually overcomes this challenge. Patients who fall asleep and wake up startled may move more erratically if they are disoriented. If a patient falls asleep, it may be prudent to wake them up in order to prevent the situation. Clear and continuous communication with the anesthesia team throughout surgery can help manage these situations that arise with unexpectedly uncooperative patients, safely and quickly. In most instances, surgical complications are avoidable. One of the most dreaded complications during cataract surgery is the dropped nucleus. Christos Ifantides from Denver Health Medical Center in Colorado shares his five main goals when this complication occurs. Most cataract surgeons will encounter a dropped nucleus at some point in their careers. This is especially true for those who take on non-routine cases. Proper training and clear thinking can help to provide the highest level of care to patients who experience this dreaded complication. The preoperative cataract evaluation is a critical step in planning for potential complications during surgery. What should you look for? Any risk factors for generalized complications during cataract surgery is a risk factor for a dropped nucleus. This can include poor visualization because of a small pupil or interoperative floppy iris syndrome and a mature or dense cataract. Other factors such as zonulopathy, prior trauma, and a history of ocular surgery, for example, vitrectomy, also raise concern about a possible complication. Which risk factors are most dangerous specifically for a drop nucleus? An article published in 2020 reviewed 1.7 million European cataract surgeries and created a list of the leading causes of a drop nucleus. The multivariate analysis found the following statistically significant risk factors listed in order of significance. White cataract, prior vitrectomy, or preoperative visual acuity, 
small pupil, pseudoexfoliation, and diabetic retinopathy. I was surprised to see white cataract at the top of the list, but it makes sense. White cataracts can be pressurized, soft or very dense, fibrotic, iatrogenic, or post-traumatic with zonulopathy. In short, white cataracts are unpredictable in nature and harbingers of bad things to come. Imagine the lens begins to sink during surgery. This is not an ideal time to make a game plan. Prepare in advance for the worst by determining the equipment and products you will need to get the job done. Much of my strategy depends on the resources available to me. I have worked on five different continents in low resource settings. My approach to dropped lens depends on access to retinal care and the burden placed on the patient. If there is no realistic option for retinal care, I may be more aggressive about trying to retrieve a fallen lens. This situation has happened to me only once abroad, but realizing that you have no retina backup is stressful. I advise giving this matter serious consideration before deciding to do surgical work abroad without adequate training. This article, however, focuses on high-resource environments such as the United States, Canada, and Europe. In this setting, I have five main goals when a drop nucleus occurs. Goal number one, ensure adequate pain control. The administration of a subtenon's block is helpful because surgery will take longer than expected and you want your patient to be comfortable. Prioritize anything you could do to reduce the patient's pain and fidgeting. I favor a 50-50 mixture of lidocaine 2% without epinephrine and bupivacaine 0.75% injected using a green balm cannula placed through a conjunctiva tenon cutdown. This provides quick, short-acting anesthesia, and it can keep pain at bay for hours. Goal number two, remove the vitreous from the anterior segment. A thorough anterior vitrectomy is crucial if the presence of vitreous in the anterior segment is suspected. Otherwise, cystoid macular edema, infection, and retinal tears or detachment may occur. Vitreous strands can also compromise the placement of an IOL. I suture the main wound and create a separate paracentesis to improve fluidics and chamber stability. Even if the suture must be cut to allow the placement of an IOL and the main wound resutured again, these steps are worth the time. Triessence, either dilute or small undiluted quantities, is used to stain vitreous if present in the anterior segment. Kenalog may be administered for the same indication, but it is considered an off-label use. If you use the Centurion Vision System, I recommend making a separate procedure setting that is dedicated to anterior vitrectomy. For instance, Procedure 8. By creating an entirely separate procedure setting, you can use the foot pedal to switch back and forth between cut IA and IA cut without the help of your scrub tech. Special thanks to Greg Glassman from Alcon for teaching me this. Goal number three, place a lens. Implanting an IOL optimizes the patient's ability to see even if a cataractous lens is in the vitreous. Of course, a posterior chamber IOL requires adequate anterior capsular support. The options are to place a three-piece IOL in the sulcus or with optic capture, or to implant a three-piece or one-piece acrylic IOL in the bag using reverse optic capture. For any optic capture procedure, an intact capsulotomy that is smaller than the optic is necessary. If capsular support is inadequate, I do one of two things. Either I place an anterior chamber IOL, or I leave the patient aphakic and consider placing a secondary IOL at a later time. This decision depends on the age of the patient, the risk of glaucoma, uveitis, and corneal endothelial disease, and the patient's overall visual prognosis. Goal number four, allow a retina colleague to address the dropped lens. Fishing for a dropped or dropping lens can lead to pain, 
cystoid macular edema, and retinal tears or detachment. Personal ego must be put aside, and the retrieval of the lens must be left to a retina colleague. Even if you get most of the cataract out, residual nuclear chips, epinucleus, or cortex may cause persistent inflammation, pain, and hardship for the patient. Goal number five, know when to wash and when to refer. Some cataract surgeons prefer to observe patients to see if retained nuclear fragments resolve on their own. Many articles have been published on the optimal timeline for vitrectomy in an eye with a dropped nucleus or retained nuclear fragments, and the argument for early referral and surgery has been well documented. A particularly useful systematic review and meta-analysis focused on the timing of vitrectomy for retained lens fragments. Vanner et al. concluded that significantly better outcomes including visual acuity, retinal detachment, increased IOP, intraocular infection or inflammation, are achieved with earlier vitrectomy. For these reasons, I prefer early referral and management by the retina team. This is a difficult conversation to have, but it's much easier if the complication was addressed with the patients during informed consent. Because I perform fewer routine surgeries these days, my preoperative conversations are robust. I cover general risks, but also highlight the specific issues for which a patient may be at increased risk. My conversation always includes the following statement. Quote, if I don't feel like I can get all of the cataract out safely, or if I can't implant the lens safely, there could be a need for more surgery later. I will do whatever I think is safest for your eye. End quote. Even with routine surgery, you are much better off not breezing through the informed consent. If you discuss the potential complications in depth with the patients before surgery, you can lean on that discussion after surgery when you talk to them about an intraoperative complication. Studies show that deserting patients, devaluing or failing to understand their and or their family's views, and communicating information poorly are major components of malpractice claims. When complications arise, showing the patient that you care about the outcome takes time, energy, and focus. It can derail an efficient clinic or OR schedule. It is, however, the easiest way to avoid erosion of the doctor-patient relationship. More importantly, it is the right thing to do, and it is something we would expect from our own doctors if a complication happened during cataract surgery on our own eyes. Another challenging scenario is cataract surgery in small pupils. Lukan Mishev from Bulgaria discusses risk factors for meiosis and intraoperative management techniques for small pupils and intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. We often encounter patients whose pupillary dilation is limited or suboptimal. A poorly dilating pupil does not provide a sharp red reflex or adequate visibility for either the creation of a sufficiently large capsulorexis or phacoemulsification. This article provides advice on how to proceed in these cases. A major part of successfully executing cataract surgery is being cognizant of seven risk factors for intraoperative meiosis. First, pseudoexfoliation syndrome, iris sphincter atrophy, tissue hypoxia, and a compromised zonal apparatus. Second, uveitis, a chronic condition characterized by posterior synechia and iris atrophy. Third, diabetes, which can lead to a weak response to midriatic agents and intraoperative constriction of the pupil. Fourth, 
prolonged surgical time. Fifth, therapy with systemic alpha-adrenergic blockers such as tamsulzin. It is important to note that not only men are treated with alpha-adrenergic blockers, this drug class is also often used to treat women for high blood pressure and urinary retention. Sixth, topical therapy with pilocarpine and carbahol, which can lead to the formation of posterior synechia and sphincter hypertrophy. Seventh, the use of intravenous anesthetics, such as fentanyl. Pharmacologic and mechanical approaches may be employed to manage a small pupil intraoperatively. The former includes the off-label administration of either epinephrine 0.5 ml uh, or 0.1% in 500 ml balanced salt solution or phenylephrine 1.5% and lidocaine 1% intracamerally in the irrigation solution. An alternative is to perform an off-label intercameral direct injection of either preservative-free epinephrine 1 to 4000 diluted in balanced salt solution or lidocaine epinephrine preparation. In Bulgaria, where I practice, epinephrine is added to the irrigation solution in all cases. This approach maintains an adequately sized pupil during surgery. When intraoperative floppy iris syndrome develops, Unexpectedly, during cataract surgery, which means the size of the pupil is sufficient at the outset of surgery but later constricts, oftentimes it is because the patient failed to recall prior short-term therapy with systemic alpha-adrenergic blocker. The continuous curvilinear capsulorexis is a key factor in successful cataract surgery. This step demands an adequately sized pupillary opening of approximately 4.5 to 5.5 millimeters. Some surgeons can effectively guide the CCC even under the iris with forceps or a needle and achieve an adequately sized curvilinear capsulorexis. Alternatively, automated devices such as a femtosecond laser, capsule laser or zepto may be used to perform the capsulotomy. Adequate pupillary dilation is required even with automated devices. The appropriate pupillary size depends mainly on the surgeon's experience and the technique used to extract the nucleus. In general, the evite and conquer requires a pupillary size of at least 4.5 mm, whereas vertical and horizontal chop techniques require a pupillary size of 3.5 to 4 mm for safe nuclear removal. An adequately sized pupil is also important during irrigation and aspiration, and the size required depends on the INA technique used. Coaxial irrigation and aspiration require approximately a 4.5 mm pupil, whereas bimanual irrigation and aspiration require a pupil larger than 3.5 mm. This is because the ability to reach under the iris and anterior capsule margin is greater with bimanual INA. Fluidics also plays an important role, especially in cases of IFIS. Low fluidic settings are preferable because iris tissue tends to follow fluid waves. Proper wound architecture and a good match between the sleeve and incision are therefore advisable, as is minimizing maneuvers of the facultip and feeding pieces into the facultip with the chopper. 
My preferred settings are as follows. A bottle height of 80 cm, a flow rate of 40 ml per minute, a vacuum level of 280 mm and a dynamic rise of 0. Further, I use torsional ultrasound and intelligent focus software, depending on the density of the nucleus and I rely on mechanical chopping more than on the holding properties of the FACO tip. Another key consideration is lens choice. I use an IOL that has a slowly unfolding hydrophobic seal loop design because it's easy to insert through a small pupil and to position it in the back. If the pupil size is not sufficient despite the pharmacologic strategies and maneuvers discussed earlier, the next options are mechanical stretching and retaining maneuvers. My preferred approach is to place iris hooks because they can act as a stretching device, iris tissue retainer and capsular support when needed, for example in case of pseudo-exfoliative capsular zonular instability. I typically place four iris hooks on one in each quadrant and stretch the pupillary diameter to no more than 5 mm to avoid an irregular postoperative shape and to prevent iris root ischemia from overstretching. The paracentesis for the hooks should be created slightly more limbally and parallel to the iris so that the iris does not lift as the pupil is stretched to the desired size. Some surgeons place five iris hooks in a diamond fashion with the fifth hook positioned under the main corneal incision to prevent the iris from prolapsing during surgery. Other pupillary expansion devices include a malugin ring uh, made of polypropylene, canabrava ring made of PMMA and eye ring pupil expander made of polyurethane. All of these devices achieve round smooth expansion of the pupil to between 6 and 7 mm which allows cataract surgery to be performed safely. Manual stretching maneuvers can be tried but generally with limited success. A manual approach is also more likely than a device to traumatize the iris which increases the risk of postoperative cystoid macular edema. The injection of a high density OVD may facilitate certain steps such as the capsulorexis, but the success and duration of this strategy again are limited. Cataract surgery in the presence of a small pupil is extremely challenging. Maintaining a balance between surgical trauma and safe and effective cataract extraction is the key to success. The choice of management strategy depends on the surgeon's experience, the presence of ocular comorbidities and the availability of devices. Lastly, Victoria Sang from UCLA in Los Angeles explores the conservative and surgical options for cyclodialysis cleft repair. A cyclodialysis cleft is a separation of the longitudinal fibers of the ciliary muscle from the scleral spur. This separation creates a direct connection between the anterior chamber and suprachoroidal space which can lead to low IOP and clinical manifestations of hypotony due to the increase in aqueous outflow. Cyclodialysis clefts occur mainly from trauma and are rare after intraocular surgery. Inadvertent cyclodialysis clefts, however, can occur when MIGS is combined with cataract surgery. 
The use of MIGS devices in the aqueous outflow pathway at the time of cataract surgery is increasing, so it is important for surgeons to have a heightened awareness of this possible intraoperative complication. Cyclodialysis cleft creation during standalone cataract surgery is rare with modern clear corneal phaco techniques, but cleft creation after phaco emulsification with a scleral tunnel and after extracapsular cataract extraction has been reported. The exact cause of the clefts during these procedures is unclear, but it is thought to be related to angle trauma during iris manipulation or lens implantation. In a series of three cases of cyclodialysis cleft after routine phaco emulsification, all of the patients had a history of blunt ocular trauma in the affected eye, and the postoperative cleft was thought to be related to activation of a dormant cleft in the traumatized eye during surgery. Combining MIGS with cataract surgery increases the possibility of inadvertent cleft creation during surgery. The malpositioning of MIGS devices and poor intraoperative visualization of angle structures can lead to inadvertent injury of the ciliary body and cyclodialysis cleft formation. Iatrogenic cyclodialysis clefts have been reported after procedures involving a trabectome, surgery with a cahook dual blade, and microcahook trabeculectomy. The recalled cypass microstent intentionally created a controlled cyclodialysis cleft, but those larger than two millimeters were not found to be associated with hypotony or the need for reoperation. Intraoperatively, a cyclodialysis cleft may be identified with a gonioscopic view under the microscope of heme, corneal edema, and other opacities do not block the surgeon's view of the angle. Under gonioscopy, a cleft appears as an abnormal region posterior to the scleral spur with posterior displacement of the ciliary body and iris root. The cleft region may vary in appearance and color, white, black, or gray. If angle injury is suspected after intraoperative difficulty with a MIGS device, an OVD can be injected into the area where the MIGS device was used to improve the gonioscopic view and search for a potential cleft. If the gonioscopic view is poor, an endoscope can also be used intraoperatively to search for a cyclodialysis cleft. Postoperatively, a high index of suspicion makes the prompt identification of an iatrogenic cyclodialysis cleft more likely. Suspicious findings include low IOP and or clinical signs of ocular hypotony in the absence of a wound leak after cataract surgery. If there is no significant corneal edema, a cleft may be visualized with gonioscopy in the clinic. To aid with diagnosis, ultrasound biomicroscopy and anterior segment OCT may also be used to identify a separation of the ciliary body from the scleral spur. Small clefts may resolve with observation alone. The mainstay of medical therapy for a cyclodialysis cleft is administering cycloplegic agents to relax the ciliary muscle so that the detached fibers can be reopposed to the scleral spur. The role of steroids is less clear. Studies have hypothesized that both increasing and decreasing the steroid dose can facilitate cleft closure. Multiple laser techniques have been reported for cleft repair. The theory is that laser ablation induces a localized inflammatory reaction that promotes cleft closure. Argon laser energy can be applied within the cleft site using a gonioscopy lens. Transcleral diode photocoagulation techniques using the G-probe with a double row of applications have also been reported, and transcleral techniques with an YAG laser using a non-contact technique with two rows of applications have been described. Clefts that cannot be managed by more conservative measures may require surgical repair. 
The surgical mainstay is direct cyclopexy to oppose the sclera and the wall of the ciliary body. This can be achieved using several different techniques with possible adjunctive treatments and modifications. Most techniques involve the creation of a partial or full thickness scleral flap to access the ciliary body, which is then sutured to the undersurface of the sclera. Nylon or polypropylene sutures are passed externally or through the anterior chamber to oppose the sclera to the ciliary body. Pryotherapy is often used as an adjunct to aid with cleft closure. In addition to direct cyclopexy, other novel surgical techniques, including gas tamponade with cryotherapy, internal cerclage with a capsular tension ring, placement of an eye wall in the sulcus with rotation of the lens to oppose the area of the cleft, and te temporary anterior scleral buckling have been used for cleft repair. If a cyclodialysis cleft remains unresolved for a prolonged time, chronic issues can arise from ocular hypotony. Hypotony maculopathy, corneal edema, and disc edema can all lead to a temporary or permanent decrease in visual acuity. After the successful closure of a cleft, many eyes undergo a period of dramatic and often painful elevation in IOP. The majority of these cases are self-limited and resolve with topical and oral IOP-lowering therapy, but a small proportion may require filtration surgery for adequate IOP reduction. Thanks to our expert panel for providing their insights. For more pearls on managing challenges in cataract surgery that can help to enhance your grit in the OR, check out the April issue of CRST, available at crstoday.com.